Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a kind of warmish out there, but it's not going to be too bad. The humidity, hopefully, will stay low. No matter where you go today, take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. And when we come back in just a bit, are you tired of Philadelphia? Are you tired of the weather? Do you need a break? Well, we're going to take you on a little trip. We're going to take you to Rome, Italy with my next guest, Philip Barlag. He's got a new book, The History of Rome in 12 Buildings. We're going to do a road wooden tour of 12 buildings in the history of Rome. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back for conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, and you're on 94 WIP. We're going to take a little vacation this hour with my guest, Philip Barlag, author of the new book, The History of Rome in 12 Buildings. Good morning, Philip Barlag. Good morning, Peter. How are you today? I'm fine. What is there about Rome for you that makes it so special and made you write this book? Uh, it's it's funny because I get asked this a lot. It's probably the single hardest question to ask uh, to answer because you you almost have to be there to understand it. Now, the first time I went to Rome was with my wife when we were just married and absolutely broke, and um, I think we had so little to our name that our our uh, our only option was to walk. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't we couldn't spend a lot of money, but we could see a lot of things and we covered a lot of ground in just a few days. And uh, just the, the, the combined effect of all of the antiquity, of all of the history, of all of the culture, it's just, it's so overwhelming. It's such a palpable sense of place. And you just, um, it's a place that invites you to learn more. And I took up the invitation and I've been um, studying and learning and reading and just been fascinated with it for so long. And it's a city that just, it kind of hooks you. Once you're there, you just want to be back. And even when you're not there, you still want to know more. Well, Rome's been called the Eternal City, um, and it's been around for a very long time. How did you zero in on what 12 buildings from what period you wanted? Yeah, it's funny, actually. The the term, this is something that I learned that I did not know until I started trying to organize some of my thoughts into the book, that the the Romans themselves called it the Eternal City. Even in the days of Caesar and Augustus and the great titans of history, they thought of it as ancient, and they, they called it the Eternal City. So it's a nickname that's been around for thousands of years. You know, I think when I when I first went there, um, and I do reference this a bit in the book, but the, the, the first time I saw the massive ancient walls that surround the city, they're called the Walls of Aurelian. I had never heard of Aurelian. I had no idea who that was. And so I, uh, I asked and I learned and I figured out who Aurelian was. And um, it just it sort of made me realize that there's, archi- there's an architectural legacy in Rome that spans such a wide period of time. So what I tried to do is identify buildings that would be, bring people through the chronology and get you, get anyone, whether you, you know, love Roman history or whether you've never been before, a good working understanding of the history of the city and its culture from the founding of the city to the collapse of the empire in 12 different places. So I, I, I chose them deliberately to help, you know, bring people through what I've learned um, upon all the follow-up that I've done dating back to that first trip I took all those years ago. Now, in many American cities, we find a wall, no matter how old it is, and probably tear it down for something bigger and better. 
Right. They haven't done that in Rome, have they? Well, no, they have actually, and it, it's it's one of the um, it's sort of one of the tragedies. It's the what if. Um, even into the mid 1800s, buildings in the Forum, which is sort of the most iconic part of Rome, were being torn down so that the marble could be baked in kilns and turned into lime to be reused in other projects or harvested for building materials. Even the Colosseum itself, a big portion of its out, one of its outside walls, the, the stone blocks were torn down in the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And actually, if you uh, dig even a little further, you find all these amazing connections where the building materials in one thing actually began their life in a Roman monument, an ancient Roman monument or temple. And uh, it's there's fascinating connections between buildings that you could never imagine where the materials from one began as something else entirely. So they, uh, I think that really there's just there was so much of it that even as we began to have an sense of culture and history and preservation and the importance of those things, enough survived that that instinct to pull things down to make it to the present and we're, we're of course very fortunate that there is what there is now i do i take it that rome is a walkable city absolutely uh it's uh, the the ancient sites uh, are, are quite concentrated uh if you look in the book and you take the two furthest points away uh you know opposite corners of the city they're probably a 40-minute walk from one another, and those are the, the points out on the extremes. Most things are pretty centralized, and uh, actually the way I set the book up was to give everything as a point of orientation from the Colosseum in terms of not just metro distance, but walking distance. And there's not a lot of excessively long walks, but uh, the walk itself is always very rewarding in Rome because there's so much in the city, and you can always stumble upon something you didn't know what you were looking for. In fact, quite a few of the things that I talk about in the book uh, are things that I only discovered by way of being on my way to somewhere else. And I think that's immensely rich, uh, immensely rewarding. All right. Take us for a walk, Philip. Okay. Where should we go? You tell me. <laughs> All right. So if we get to pick anywhere, you get to start in any place in Rome, and you only got one place to see, my personal favorite, the place that I go first when I go back, is to uh, the Temple of the Divine Julius Caesar. Now, this is in the Roman Forum, which itself is just so full of um, uh, wonderful sites. I mean, I could write the history of Roman 12 buildings in the Roman Forum. Um, in uh, So the Temple of Caesar, Julius Caesar is my favorite person from history. He's enduringly fascinating. Of course, he's flawed and terrible, and, and but wonderful and charismatic. And history sort of looks back on him as a little bit of a tyrant, right? He was this megalomaniac, and he consolidated power, and he, uh, you know, he, he took the traditional Roman system of government, which was very much an oligarchy, and he consolidated the power in the hands of the individual. And from him, the concept of em emperor was born. And the, the, the traditional power brokers in Rome, they, um, they resented that. He took the power of three or four hundred people and put them into one, and that's what led to his assassination. And, but what they, in their minds, they felt like they were liberating the world from a great tyrant, and they tried to sell that vision to the people. But in their, their disconnect was that despite his consolidation of power, Caesar was also extremely generous with the rank-and-file citizen. He grew up very poor in what we would today call the slums on the outskirts of town. 
even despite his sort of noble pedigree. And so he had a much more affinity with the, say, the average citizen. And so when he died and, and when he was uh, his, at his funeral, the citizens rose up in anger and frustration and fury at having their champion taken away from him. And they, they tore the forum to pieces and pulled down anything that was flammable and threw it on his funeral pyre. And his funeral turned into a great conflagration and spilled over and burnt down a big portion of the, uh, the forum as an expression of his rage, uh, of their rage, of his uh, having been assassinated. And you can still go to the spot of that pyre today. Like Caesar's last resting spot lies in the heart of the forum, and it's protected by a modern wall. But the, the site of the pyre itself is still there. And so for me, it's, it's wonderful to go and be connected to Caesar and his last spot, really the last archaeological spot that you, know, you can make a physical connection to Caesar. And um, you know, the, a temple was built up and around it where posthumously the Senate decided to try to do a little damage control and said, no, we didn't mean to kill him. Actually, he's a god. <laughs> so it's a, a temple was built up and around the remains. The temple itself is ruined, but the altar where this had happened, you can still visit. And uh, so if I'm going to tell anyone to take a stroll and go through Rome, the first place I'm going to suggest is the Temple of Caesar. Have to wonder, though, if the temple's gone, how the altar survived. I think because of homage that people played, uh, paid to it. And largely, um, the forum, you know, as things happen, there's this sort of natural uh, uh, rising of the surface level, right? You know, leaves fall and decay and clutter becomes dirt and the dirt, you know, the, 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 the floor, if you will, of the, the city rises. And a lot of um, what we see in the forum was underground for a thousand years until you know, people began to start taking shovels and digging and lowering and excavating down. So the, uh, the surface level of Rome, um, modern Rome, is 10, 20, 30 feet above the ancient level. And that's actually such a great, um, uh, a great thing to know because there's so much yet to be discovered. The book closes looking at a church that is, exists in three layers. When you walk off the street, you're walking into a Renaissance-era church. But if you go down one flight of stairs, you're now in the foundations of an earlier church upon which the modern, the more modern one was built, sort of a late Middle Ages in the 400s era, 600s era church. But if you go down even further, now you're in this ancient Roman street level, and there's buildings that date to well before the time of Caesar. There's ruins from um, uh, an, an imperial mint. There's a temple to a, a cult god called Mithras. And so in the one building, you go down and you go down and you go down, and you're, you're walking back in time over 2,000 years. So some of what survives does so because it was only excavated after that impulse to tear things down had passed mercifully. And so there's so many places that are yet to be discovered. And, and I, one of my favorite things about Rome is wondering what lies underneath every foot. Right? You're on a modern street, but something's down there. What is it? And will we ever know? Will we ever dig? Will we ever find out? Sounds like you can't dig a hold of plant flowers without finding an <laughs> artifact. You know, it's funny. It's one of the problems that plagues the modern city is uh, if you think about building a subway line, how much uh, is yet to be discovered. And if you spend a, t a little bit of time digging into it, you'll find that uh, there are all these instances of things being discovered where in places that people never would have thought to look, 
And there's also uh, construction issues where there's so much antiquity that the Romans themselves become a touch annoyed with it, at least in the development of their infrastructure. And sometimes they try to get by without telling anybody what they've found so they can just hurry up and move the project along. And um, uh, there have certainly been losses, architectural losses, archaeological losses from people who just uh, don't report finding things so they can just keep digging and build their tunnels or build their foundations. Um, and that is, uh, you know, cer certainly unfortunate, but the, the, the broader arc of discovery um, is uh, it's magnificent. And there's always something new to be discovered in Rome. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Philip Boilag, is taking us on a walking tour of Rome as portrayed in his new book, The History of Rome in 12 Buildings. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, where would we go after the Temple of Caesar? Okay, so since we're in that area, you know, the road that lines the, the Temple of Caesar it's called the Via Sacra, or the Sacred Way. It's probably the most ancient Rome, road in Rome. And it's nice to stumble, you know, to, to wander down it. And you're walking along the cinder block or uh, the uh, cobblestones that, that all the great figures of Roman history um, would have walked along. It's excavated down to its uh, sort of Caesar and Augustan era. So we're going to go up the, uh, the, the, the Via Sacra, up to the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus is just, to me, it's, fascinating you know there, there were three emperors that ruled in sort of the, the middle empire if you will uh vespasian titus and domitian it's a father and then his two sons in turn so it's a, a short dynasty in terms of dynasties but i find these people fascinating and they were some of the great builders they were the ones that built the Colosseum, for example so what i like about the arch of titus is that it has the most evocative sculpture that tells what I think is a pretty horrible story, but it's a fascinating story. So Titus was the uh, the older son of the general and emperor Vespasian. And Titus is the one who uh, completed what's known as the first Roman-Jewish war. So Titus is off in Jerusalem laying siege to the city while father came down, overthrew uh, an emperor, claimed the, uh, claimed the empire for himself. And Titus, um, who, um, you know, was dashing and charismatic, and the Roman historians absolutely loved him, completed the terrible seas of Jerusalem, you know, broke through, breached the city walls, sacked and destroyed the Second Temple. And what we know of uh, today is the Wailing Wall uh, is all that remains of that temple that, that Titus destroyed. And he you know, sort of violated the holiest of the holies, and he stormed off and grabbed all the treasure and brought it back to Rome. So to, uh, you know, to those in, in the Holy Land, he is a villain, but to those in Rome, he was a hero because he vanquished a foreign foe and he put down a rebellion and he enriched the empire through his seizure of treasure. And it was that treasure that he used that financed the Colosseum. So you think about the Colosseum as this magnificent building, and that it certainly is, and it has this great history, and you know, it's told in great stories and movies like Gladiator, but what financed it was this sort of terrible psychological scar that was inherited, uh, in, 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 um, put upon you know, a people far away. But we're at the Arch of Titus and not the Colosseum because that story is actually told in the sculptural program. When you look at the, the arch, if you're uh, facing toward the Colosseum and you look to the right inside, you can see inside the sculpture the, the holy menorah and the treasures being taken from the temple, it's still very vividly there. And it, it, 
it's such a poignant reminder that sort of one person's hero is another person's villain and vice versa. And then if you look up under the underside of the arch, there's this, uh, this, this um, uh, sculpture of Titus in heaven looking down because the, the arch itself was not actually built by Titus. It was built by his little brother, Domitian. Titus was very um, beloved and Vespasian poured all his energy in grooming his older son for power, but he neglected his younger son. And uh, who had no experience in governance, and Titus died very young, uh, very early into his reign, about two years. So Domitian needed legitimacy of his own, so he built this as a monument to the family's accomplishments to remind everyone of his link to his uh, illustrious uh, father and um, brother. So on one side you see the sculpture that tells the story of the sack of the temple, and then above you see Titus looking down benevolently to remind people that, hey, Domitian comes from noble stock with great, uh, you know, great uh, deeds to be celebrated. So I think just in that one building, there's just so many deep and rich stories that, that tie Rome to its place in the world and, and sort of remind us of the nature of glory and, and its sort of unintended consequences. Time to walk on to the Colosseum? <laughs> it's a great place to go. You know, the Colosseum is just, uh, it's fascinating, and the, the, the chapter of the book that deals with it is all centered on the name of why, uh, is centered on the theme of why does it, why is it called the Colosseum? Right. The, the, uh, the technical name for the Colosseum is the Flavian Amphitheater. The Flavian was this family, Vespasian, uh, Titus, and Domitian. So, but why is it called the Colosseum? And the, the short answer is that the building itself is, um, built atop the, uh, the, the, the drained land of an artificial lake that had been at the center of Nero's uh, pleasure palace that he built for himself that covered 25% of the entire landmass of the city of Rome, mm. which, I mean, and, and the, just to prove how out of touch he was, uh, Nero said, as the palace is ending completion, finally I can begin to live like a human being. I mean, imagine any modern city, take 25%, make it one house for one person, and you think that person's a, a little megalomaniac. Uh, but next to that lake, that artificial lake in the center that he could go for his reflective, con contemplative enjoyment, he built a giant statue to himself, 98 feet tall, golden, of course, as the house was known as the Golden House. So when Nero was toppled and after a, a civil war and a series of short-lived emperors, the, the Flavians took control and they needed their uh, legitimacy. They had seized the, the uh, emperor through a, uh, or the empire through a military coup, so they needed something to show their legitimacy. So they drained the lake and built the Colosseum, and again it was financed by the treasure seized from Jerusalem. And so the, this magnificent building uh, uh, was trying to replace a complicated and flawed legacy from Nero, who was the last of the descendants of Julius Caesar to be emperor. And um, if you've ever heard that the, the Colosseum could be flooded for naval battles, which it's true, and the, it's the legacy of the plumbing of Nero's lake. They just diverted the water and channeled it in different ways. So um, over time... Uh, people, of course, referenced it as the Flavian Amphitheater, but they began to use the shorthand Colosseum because the statue that Nero had built for himself remained. They left it in place. Well, sort of. They modified it a little bit. They lopped 
off the head of Nero and they put the head of Vespasian on it. <laughs> Since the statue was intended to be godlike, why not have a godlike statue to the ruling emperor? And the statue itself was modeled on one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes. So it was Nero in the same pose that the Colossus of Rhodes was in. It just now it had the head of Vespasian. And as emperors came and went, the head would be replaced to reflect the ruling emperor. And for centuries, there was the Colossus stood next to the, the, the Flavian Amphitheater, and therefore it eventually became the Colosseum, more of a euphemistic shorthand for the building as opposed to its formal name. But it stuck. And so even in the name today, there's this little hidden shadow of the Emperor Nero, who, uh, you know, of course, was one of the more interesting people in, in history. Uh, but he's, his name, just in the slightest, faintest way, is, is still there. Would we still find the places where the lions were kept, the gladiators slept, and the Christians were readied for death? Yes. So um, the Colosseum is... Uh, there's a reason it's the most popular tourist destination in all of Rome. And the, the sub-foundations, um, you can see, and I'm not entirely sure how, but you think there are ways for tour and to visit. And I, I, I say that with so qualified because one of the things that people need to know before they go to Rome is that the rules are always changing about what's open and what's not. Um, so, for example, when my wife and I first went, Nero's golden house, the remains of it that hadn't been destroyed, were had been opened for the first time about a year earlier in, in roughly 2,000 years. And we got to go in and tour it, and it's amazing. And a, a couple weeks after we left, they closed it again and has not been reopened since. I think they're starting to reopen it because inadvertently some opening it had changed the airflow, which had started to degrade some of the ancient frescoes, and they had to figure out the ventilation issue. So the same thing is true with the Colosseum or with any of the sites. And in my book, I always say things like, please check local websites or ask questions or find out because you never really know. But a lot of the substructures of the, the Colosseum uh, that would, you know, where the, the elevators or where the elevators were that lifted things up onto the, the floor of the Colosseum or the, uh, the, the passageways and tunnels, all of that, um, the, the, the substructure of the Colosseum is in remarkably good shape. Amazing. All right. Where after the Colosseum? Oh, you know, I kind of had a feeling you were going to ask me that question. So, um, you know, the second most popular place in Rome is uh, to visit is the Pantheon. And in the book, I really try to pick places that are a little bit off the beaten path and places give a slightly different look at places that are very quite, you know, quite popular. So the Colosseum, of course, this is a popular place. The Pantheon is a popular place. There are other things in the book that are a little bit less well-known, but, but I'll tell you a touch about the Pantheon. It is the most perfectly preserved ancient temple in the world. And the Pantheon is breathtaking. You walk through the doors and... Um, you just, you're transported back in time. The, the porphyry and marble floors, the vault, you know, the coffered dome with the oculus and the, the, the hole at the top that allowed for it to carry so much more weight, be more grand. Incidentally, the Pantheon, the, the dome is 43 meters tall. 
Michelangelo himself was the chief architect of the, the Basilica of St. Peter's for some time, and he was the one responsible for building the dome. And so when he designed the dome of the Pantheon or of St. Peter's, he made it 42 meters in deference to the brilliance of the ancients, uh, which I find just just a wonderful fact. So even massive, hulking St. Peter's, which is the largest church in the world, the dome is still a meter shorter yet than uh, than you find in the Pantheon. So it was invite people to go in, and it's a place just to, to wander, right? It's not, um, uh, it's self-contained. So you can walk the circ you know, walk very slowly and walk the exterior, wander in the middle, look up. But when you leave the Pantheon, you should look back and across the facade, you'll see the inscription, which translated says something to the extent of uh, Marcus Agrippa, son of Lucius, built this while consul for the third time. And you're great. You wonder who is Marcus Agrippa. And incidentally, Marcus Agrippa is also one of my, probably my top five favorite Romans. He was uh, uh, Augustus's right-hand man. But by the time the pantheon that you see before you was built, Augusta, uh, Agrippa had been dead for 100 years. So the builder, or more than, the builder who built the Pantheon and the, who commissioned it gives credit to someone else. And it kind of begs the question and invites the reader to learn, and I encourage people to do so, why? Why would you build this magnificent building that in as soon as it was done, everyone recognized was architecturally just so brilliant, so beautiful, such a place of awe and wonder and reverence, and then give it give credit to it to someone who's been dead for a century. Uh, so it's a little uh, quirk of history, and it's something that, that uh, you know, a lot of travel guides aren't going to tell you, but I really want the people to understand. Those, those To me, those little pieces of knowledge deeply enrich the, the trip and the experience. And so that's where I say, let's go to the Pantheon, and then, but, but make sure you pay attention to the inscription because uh, there's a lot to learn there. Sounds like you need to pack a good pair of walking shoes. When you go to Rome. Yes. It's, uh, so it's funny. I'll tell you, when I went to uh, finish the book, so um, I was under extremely tight deadline, actually. I pitched this book to a publisher, and they were gracious enough to accept the proposal. But I had three months to write the book from scratch, and uh, which is quite a timeline. My previous book, I took three years. And when I, uh, I finished the draft, I course wanted to make sure that everything was accurate and it, it's hard to make sure that it's accurate without going so I went over and I spent four days in Rome walking the city this way and that up and down from you know from point to point and, and everywhere in between and I uh, you know I keep my little Fitbit and I look at my steps and I was averaging about 40,000 steps a day which I don't even know how that translates to a mileage but or since we're in Rome kilometers uh, but, uh, you know, I, w I, I wore out a pair of shoes over the course of one trip, and I encourage everyone else to do so, too, because the dust on your shoes has stories, too. Oh, I'm sure. Um, all right. We have time for another building, I hope. Well, I hope so, too, and I hope that people will go and, and uh, uh, experience the, uh, the wonder of the city. So we'll look at one last place. Um, which, you know, I'm always fascinated by the layers of history. And so I'm, uh, I'm going to take people to a building called the Mamertine Prison. And I will say that as I've offered different places, these are not in chronological order, though the book is. And the Mamertine Prison is one of the most ancient structures in Rome. So the Romans didn't have a prison. They did, you know, in Rome, 
if you were convicted of a crime, you were either guilty or not. And if you were guilty, the punishments were pretty binary. You were either banished or executed. Or, and if you were not guilty, you were free. So they didn't really have the need for what we would think of as a prison system and for what could be an incredibly brutal society, which, to be fair, existed in a time when all societies were incredibly brutal, or at least as judged by modern standards or Western societies. Um, they... Uh, you know, they didn't really have a great need to house prisoners, but they did occasionally need a place to put people while they figured out what to do with them. And in Rome, uh, if you were a foreign enemy engaged in war and you were captured, you were paraded through the streets. Uh, and then once, you know, as part of propaganda, uh, and then ritually strangled. And that took place in the Mamertine prison. So a lot of the great foes of Roman history uh, sort of met their end in this really interesting place. But the, uh, the the most notable aspect of the Mamertine prison, you mentioned in the Colosseum, the Christian persecution. There's a bit of debate about the extent of how true, uh, truly extensive the Christian persecutions were. But it's believed that uh, the first Christian persecution took place under the Emperor Nero when he tried to blame the Christians for the great fire that had ravaged so much of the city to shift any any blame away from him for what he did or didn't do over the course of that tragedy. And so in the, the sweep, anyone who was accused of being affiliated with this weird new cult was grabbed, and many times they were put on trial. And two people um, that uh, legend says were caught up in this, let's call it the sweep or, or uh, purge, were uh, St. Peter uh, and Paul. And they... Um, uh, were taken to the Mamertine prison and held there awaiting trial. And so in this prison, which I'm using the word prison, but it's it's actually an ancient cistern. It's massive old stone with a small roof, and it, you can only imagine the claustrophobia. It's a place you have to go to experience because you put yourself in the minds of someone who's thrown down in what's essentially an ancient well with no uh, in, in point, no, no stairs down, just a hole that they lowered people through with no lighting. It'd be pitch black. It's, it's a really um, eerie place. But the saints, uh, Peters and Paul, were, were down there um, in the prison, and it said that St. Peter um, baptized many of the fellow prisoners that were there personally, uh, and it was from this place that they were taken and led off to their executions. Now, Paul was actually a Roman citizen, so he was afforded the dignity of a beheading. Peter was not a Roman citizen, so he was, uh, he was, as the legend says, crucified in the Vatican, uh, which was essentially a field on the, the west side of the, the Tiber River. And as the legend says, he said he wasn't worthy to be executed in the manner of his master, so he asked to be crucified upside down. And St. Peter's Basilica is built over what is believed to be the tomb of St. Peter. And so there's uh, uh, an altar to St. Peter and Paul, and you can tell which one is Peter because he's holding the keys, right? Because Jesus in the Bible, Jesus says, I give you these uh, the keys to the, the church. So St. Peter is always depicted holding a, a pair of keys. Uh, by the way, if anyone ever sees images of a saint and they're holding a key, it's a giveaway over who the saint is depicting, who's, who's got the keys in his, uh, in his hands. 
So you're kind of going back to the beginning and you're going back to in the maritime prison, you're going back to Rome's martial culture, you're understanding who some of the great enemies of the state were, the origins of the Christian martyrs and their stories and the legends and, uh, around them. It, it's, it's just one of those places you walk off the street and you have to go down a couple levels because the archaeology exists sort of sub, you know, well below the modern street. But by going below the modern street, you're going back in time, and you're so richly rewarded with an evocative place that, that tells so much. And so, and just so you know, a few stones and great, great stories in, in a small place. And I think that uh, that would be well worth anyone's visit, uh, even if it is a bit out of the way of the traditional tours through Rome. Now, I do have to ask about one more kind of building. Please, um, we've all heard about, I think, or seen in the movies, the luxury of the Roman baths. Yes. Can you recommend visiting a bath? Well, sure. So the uh, there's two that are talked about in the book. The first is the Baths of Caracalla. Caracalla was a vicious man. I mean, genocidal maniac. Uh, and um, and this is a guy who had his own brother murdered in the arms of their mother, which is so swell, swell guy. Uh, and his crimes were, I think even the Romans were shocked by the things that Caracalla did. And uh, he built this massive bath bathing complex, the ruins of which, some of some of which are in, in really good shape uh, and, and a wonderful place to go visit. And I love the contrast between sort of the purity and the luxury and the opulence of the baths contrasted with the viciousness and for the vileness of Caracalla. So the baths of Caracalla are a great place to go visit. But the remains of the baths of Diocletian are also quite interesting because inside those remains have been built two stunning churches, one done by none other than Michelangelo. And the reason that I take such particular delight in uh, there being churches in the baths of the ruins of Diocletian is that Diocletian was a confirmed and avowed Christian persecutor. It's not that he really had anything against the Christians. It's that he, he saw that the need to stabilize the empire was built in unity and uniformity. And different religions and cults, just he wanted even uniformity across the empire because he felt like that created more stability. And so he, you know, Diocletian sponsored great Christian persecution. Um, by the way, the Emperor Constantine, who made Christianity the official religion, essentially grew up at the foot of Diocletian. So there's an interesting paradox at work there too. But so you're, when you're, you're going into these churches, these magnificent churches um, in the ruins of the Baths of Diocletian, it's sort of the ultimate triumph in a sense of the Christianity over their persecutors, um, or at least their ancient persecutors. And I, I think uh, uh, there's a great hidden little insight that you're enjoying the, the, the decline and fall of the pagan Roman pagan religion and the triumph of Rome as the center of one of the world's major religions and, and the different tensions at play there between persecution and being persecuted to being sort of the ascendant and triumphant power. It's a great story inside the ruins of the baths of Diocletian. So that's uh, you got a couple of different options there. And there's others still, but those are uh, probably two of the more evocative ones. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Philip Barlag, author of The History of Rome in 12 Buildings. Now, Philip, stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. 
but we'll be yep. back in just a bit. And we're back. It's conversation. My conversation this morning filled with Philip Barlag, author of The History of Rome and Twelve Buildings. My name's Peter Solomon. Philip, do you think your format of looking at a city and its history in a given number of buildings would work for any of the major cities of Europe? For sure. And I would say true for America as well. I mean, there's some great history in uh, Philadelphia. There's some great history in New York and Boston. Uh, I think the idea of uh, something that's in between a dense tome of history and a travel guide that only gives things a very light treatment uh, is a useful format, but I guess that's up to the reader to decide. I, I must confess that I'm slightly biased towards answering yes to that question, given that I wrote the book, but I, I think so. I think there's a, something great to be gained uh, from understanding more about a city, its culture, its history, but through the places that you can physically visit and have a tangible connection to. Are we going to see more the history of books by Philip Barlag? I hope so. Um, I've written a little bit about um, London. I started writing a bit about London. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is it's ultimately up to the publishers to decide whether or not the idea has merit and it works. Although, generally speaking, if they've done one, they're inclined to do another. But if, you know, people buy the book, um, then uh, that gives them confidence that it's worth doing it. You know, Peter, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the I asked friends, family, neighbors, people to support the, the book, not because I make money on, on it. Actually, truthfully, candidly, I've probably lost money in all my, my writing efforts uh, when you think about the expense in versus the, the remuneration out. But the reason I ask people is not for the gain, but because I want to have the option to do it again. I love doing this. I love sharing stories. It's a great passion of mine. And so uh, when, when people support the book, it's supporting my, my passion, too. And that's really ultimately what I'm asking for when I you know, beg my, my parents and my sisters and my neighbors and whoever to please buy a copy of the book. Uh, but I, I have uh, – started work on uh, London, and I actually have outlines for several other cities, too. So hopefully it becomes something that I can keep going. But I wouldn't be there without people taking the time to hear about it and to express interest in it. So I'm super grateful that you've uh, you've invested so much of your show and your time this morning in, in this conversation. It really means a lot to me. My pleasure. Hopefully you'll put Philadelphia on the list. Yeah, there's a, there's a story or two to be told, that's for sure. It's a great city. And, uh, you know, one with such amazing pride and great culture uh, and, and something that people, there's things that people will need to know to understand. Uh, so when I'm in town to, to start the research on the book, we'll have to get together and you'll have to show me around. Absolutely, because most people think of Philadelphia as a colonial city and we're far more a Victorian than colonial town. Right. I mean, I think when people look back on, especially the major cities in the Northeast, they tend to think of them in, in terms of the scope and scale that they have now, not what they were then. I mean, the entire colonies during the Revolutionary War had the population of roughly Little Rock, Arkansas today. <laughs> so these are right; these are small towns that grew, but the birth and the origin and what they grew into and why is, is always worth telling, whether it's Philadelphia or London or wherever. So um, there's always more to learn. Now, what surprised you, if anything, as you wrote 12 Buildings? How hard it would be to pick just, well, to, to pick the places um, and to put everything in sequence because certain buildings can be interpreted in different ways. And sometimes the, the story that you want to tell 
can be told by different buildings. So, so that matchmaking game of place and time and story um, was surprisingly complicated. And as I, you know, work through the outline on other cities as well, it, it's it's kind of fun. It's like putting a puzzle together. But uh, uh, there's a lot of things that I've learned. I thought I knew a lot until I started researching the book, and I learned a lot as we went. So. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of different things that that, that await the, the the author who tries to do something useful. What makes the history of Rome and twelve buildings different than a more traditional travel guide? So the the number one travel guide in the traditional sense uh, for Rome is Rick Steves' Rome, and it's a great book. I have it, and and he has a historian that works with him on writing some of the the, the slightly more detailed overviews of some of the buildings. The Pantheon, which I've expressed my, my awe and reverence for, gets something like three paragraphs. Um, and it's just it's not sufficient. However, the, the average reader also doesn't have time to read a full dedicated book to every place that they want to visit. And so uh, I think the, the advantage over a traditional travel guide is greater depth, but the advantage over... Uh, you know, stacks and stacks of books is a little bit more efficiency. One one thing that people should know about the book is that there, I tell each, everything that I've referenced is sort of a full chapter, but I also, before moving on to the next building, give a little bit of an insight about yet another building. So each chapter itself actually covers at least two buildings, so there's really 24 books in it. So one of the hidden secrets of the book that contains the word, the hidden secrets in the subtitle, is that there's actually more than what appears on the surface, just like Rome itself. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a question, that question being, we've talked about so many buildings connected to the men, to the emperors. Mm-hmm. Anything connected to Cleopatra? Yeah, so so Cleopatra was uh, Julius Caesar's mistress, uh, his only... Uh, son that he had was with her um, because she was not Roman. The son could not be Roman, and therefore he couldn't be an heir. Um, but Caesar uh, did, did seems to have uh, fathered a, um, a son with Cleopatra. She herself, um, uh, after he uh, died, there were two rivals to inherit the legacy of Caesar. Uh, the, the one that we know as Augustus and uh, Mark Antony. So if you've heard of Antony and Cleopatra in the Shakespeare play, that's, that's who he was. He was sort of the lieutenant, so the, uh, the, the, the biological heir versus the, you know, the right-hand man conflict. And she placed her bet on Mark Antony and lost. And Caesar, uh, uh, you know, Caesar's eventual heir became Augustus, or whom we know as Augustus. It was a title that was bestowed upon him. It meant essentially a revered one. And in the war, the eventual civil war that pitted these two against one another, um, Antony and Cleopatra lost, and Augustus won, and she uh, committed suicide quite famously by allegedly uh, falling victim to a poisonous snake. And she she uh, committed suicide by snake bite, which would have to be a pretty gruesome way to go. And so, you know, in the shadow of Caesar is the shadow of Cleopatra. She was actually in Rome the day he died, um, much to his wife's chagrin. Um, but she's there. She she got to know where to look. So when you see uh, you see Caesar, you you find find um, you find Cleopatra. But 
when 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 Augustus seized the Egyptian treasury, that's really what financed his massive building program and his imperial legitimacy. And he was a massive builder on a grand scale. I mean, it's, his uh, official propaganda biography says that on his deathbed, his last words were, I founded a city of brick and left it a city of marble. And that construction was all financed by the treasure that he uh, absconded with upon toppling Cleopatra. So not, not only is she there, but her money and her cash are a lot of what finance what you see around you. Uh, and she got there by way of being on the losing side of the civil war between Antony and Augustus. It's also interesting to me that more people know the story of Caesar and Cleopatra from Richard Burton and Liz Taylor than they do from Antony and Cleopatra. Right, right, right. And, you know, a lot of people know about the Colosseum because of Gladiator. And I think those are useful things because they spark interest. And what's amazing to me about Roman history is that you could read 10 different biographies of Caesar and find 10 different things and 10 different facts. And not only is the learning itself interesting, but you also wonder why the other historians didn't cover certain things. And maybe you know, someone places more trust in an ancient source than someone else, so one goes with a fact where the other describes that as sort of unconfirmed. So there's always more to learn, and, and it's just it's endlessly fascinating. The thing about the Romans is we know so much about them, but there are just these tantalizing gaps in our history that requires, in, their, in our knowledge of their history, that requires us to keep digging and digging, and you know, we're still learning about something that we already know so much as compared to other ancient civilizations, and yet there's just there's certain things we don't know and we can't know, and that's kind of part of the fun. Well, what sparked your interest in ancient Rome? I mean, just, had going, a... just going there. I mean, I said, and it, for me, visiting Rome was um, an invitation to learn more. You know, when, when you uh, come into Rome, you, you fly into Da Vinci Airport, you take the train into the city, into Termini Station, and when you come out of Termini Station, on your right-hand side, there's an old wall, ruined old wall. And this is the part of the foundation of the original city walls that, that were built by people, and it's not even entirely sure when they were built or by whom they were built, what's known as a figure great antiquity, ranging anywhere from 500 to 300 B.C. over semi-mythical people that you know, allegedly ruled the city before the records of the city became accurate and historians began taking note. So there's, you know, even to a city that we think of as ancient, they had ancient ancestors that were shrouded in myth and legend. And there's just this great loop of, of uncertainty and learning and discovery and then starting that process anew that just to me it's, it's endlessly fascinating and I hope that if people read the book um, I'm able to share a little bit of that that love of the city and its culture with people. And you certainly do Philip Bartag, author of the history of Rome in 12 buildings. I want to say thank you for the interview, for the book and for taking us on a little vacation this warm Sunday morning. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly enjoyed the discussion. I did too. My pleasure. Um, you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages.